Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Veterans with disabilities often benefit from service dogs. Service dogs don't just happen, though. They require careful training. The Penn Fed Foundation has information on what it takes to raise and train a service dog from a puppy. James Skank is the CEO of the Penn Fed Foundation. Andrea McCarran is the president, and they join me now. Good to have you both with us. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. All right. First of all, give us a sense of what the demand is from veterans. You know, nine million veterans are served by the Veterans Affairs Department, and many of them do need dogs. What are the demand signals you're getting? That's such a great question, Tom. And this is why PenFed Foundation has partnered with Canine Companions, because the wait time for a veteran in need of a service dog is up to two years. The demand for these highly trained service dogs is greater than ever before. Post-pandemic, with the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, we just have such a dramatic need. What is the shortage, though, is volunteer puppy raisers like me, who get these puppies at eight weeks of age, socialize them primarily up to 18 months of age, and then they go in for six months of very formal training to learn how to turn on and off light switches, how to pick things up off the floor, how to open and close a refrigerator, all kinds of life-changing skills that can really improve the independence and lifestyle of a veteran. Yeah, because you mentioned a lot of specific tasks that these dogs are capable of learning. I think maybe service dogs have gotten a bad name because of emotional support peacocks and things that people try to get on airplanes. But this is really a practical application. Very much so. Their fully trained service dogs are nothing like emotional support animals, except for the fact that, yes, they provide wonderful companionship for a veteran. But studies have shown that veterans do not need a lot of the medications that they are prescribed once they get a service dog in their life. It really is a dramatic change for them and their entire family. At PenFed, one of the first puppies I raised, Pilot, who's with me right now, is number six for me. But Maverick, which is the first dog I raised at PenFed, went to an Air Force veteran in Massachusetts who had such profound injuries that his wife had to quit her job and become his full-time caregiver. When Maverick joined their family, Josh Gage, the veteran's wife, was able to go back to school and she immediately was able to restart her career. And his life is completely different. The dog is trained to go get his cane, to fetch his medication bag, to open and close doors for him. And what's a very important skill that's taught these service dogs is called nightmare interruption. If a veteran is having night terrors, which is very common for vets who have been through combat deployments, the dog is trained to pull down their comforter, turn on the lights, and then climb in bed and lie on top of them until they are awake or calmed down and they realize everything's okay. All right. Sounds like a pretty able animal. And James, you are a Canine Companion Hero Award winner. What is PenFed writ large's interest in this? And tell us more about the connection you have with this dog organization. Providing veterans uh, freedom and independence, a higher quality of life is so important for all of us. PenFed is just one firm, and my message is really to encourage all firms to raise a puppy in training. And Canine Companions gives us that forum and gives us the professionalism of the organization in order to do it. But what it really takes is just an individual that wants to volunteer 
and employers that would let their employees bring these dogs to the workplace. Whether it's a staff meeting to a board meeting, it has provided an amazing positive experience for my entire firm these past five years. As Andrea says, they come to work every day, they socialize with the different employees, they reinforce the culture of service, doing something for others, and they reinforce a culture of kindness and respect. I've never been in a meeting in which we had a service dog or a puppy in training in which the atmosphere hasn't been extremely positive. So I encourage all CEOs across America to learn more and to bring a service dog into their workplace. What's your experience in, say, the Veterans Affairs Department or federal agencies letting, and they hire a lot of veterans, letting dogs come to work if indeed people are going to work? They are at VA, that's for sure. The law protects them. And what's wonderful about the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for puppy raisers like me is the law also covers service dogs in training, not just service dogs. So when I'm training him, if I'm going to a federal agency, if I'm going to a grocery store, a restaurant, we are covered by the law to be able to socialize the dog there. Good point. We're speaking with Andrea McCarran. She's president of the Penn Fed Foundation. And James Skank is CEO of the Penn Fed Credit Union and of the Penn Fed Foundation. And if someone wants to train a dog, what are the breeds they're likely to get? And how long does it take? It takes about 18 months for a puppy raiser to volunteer their time and socialize the dog and teach it basic obedience commands. What your listeners don't see right now is this incredibly adorable nine-week-old yellow lab golden retriever cross puppy. I see that it, That is way, my newest though... recruit. You are lucky enough to see I Pilot. I can see him, yeah. But it's a very interesting question because Canine Companions primarily uses Labrador retrievers and golden retrievers or crosses between the two. Anyone who knows anything about dogs knows that labs aim to please. They're extremely determined, very smart. And golden retrievers are also wonderful dogs, but they have kind of a smooshy temperament. And so the combination of the two is extremely powerful. However, there are also going to be veterans who have allergies to dogs, which is why standard poodles are also used fairly rarely, but they are used so all veterans in need can be covered. Yeah, this is one moment I wish this was television because people should only see that cute dog. Question, what about the Belgian Malinois, which a lot of service members have used as war dogs, and they don't translate well to the service end after veterans? You know, Belgian Malinois are such incredibly smart dogs, and they are used, as you know, by a lot of federal agencies, and I believe the Secret Service uses them at the White House. They have a very different temperament. Labradors and Goldens are really raised for their sweetness and just being gentle, good souls, whereas the Belgian Malinois are much more driven, and they have what's known as a prey drive. I mean, they are trained not just to work hard, but to fight, and that's just not something we would encourage in a service dog. Yeah, imagine taking one on the metro or something, and somebody comes at you, and you've got a Malinois. Well, for the veteran that is able to obtain one of these service dogs, what's incumbent upon him or her to make sure it stays trained and to make sure it stays emotionally and physically cared for? That's such a great question. And Canine Companions, first of all, Canine Companions and any reputable service dog organization will provide these highly trained dogs that have more than 40 skills free of charge to veterans. It really pains me, Tom, when I hear that somebody has paid up to thirty-five dollars or $50,000 for a service dog. There are great organizations out there. And Canine Companions also provides 
essentially lifelong service to these veterans, meaning they will check in with them. They are always available. They have very professional trainers, and that's how they keep those commands fresh. And if someone wants to raise a dog for the purpose of supplying it to a veteran, the training itself you have to know how to do. That's the wonderful thing that we're really trying to impart to the public. You do not need any dog training experience. You simply need a willingness to open your home and your heart and an employer like James who will allow you to bring a dog to the office. And research shows that having a dog in the office, particularly a service dog with a mission, lowers blood pressure among staff, increases productivity, and as James mentioned, it's so wonderful for teamwork. You know, I've raised so many of these dogs and people are just so thrilled to be a part of something life-changing and very often life-saving for our military. It must be tough though to raise a dog for 18 months and then give it away. That's the question I get literally every day, Tom. And it is very difficult, but clearly someone needs them more than I do. And what better way to express our gratitude to our military heroes than raising a service dog? I often tell people, I didn't serve in the military. I haven't been in combat, but I can raise and train a service dog for someone who has. And for someone that wants to raise a service dog or train a service dog, can you do that in the presence of other pets, other dogs that might be in the house or parrots or something? It's actually preferable to have another animal in the household because that's just one more socialization experience for these future service dogs. In fact, when these dogs go in for their six months of formal training after the 18 months with their puppy raisers, one of the things that is such a challenge for so many dogs is they have resident cats in the facility. And if there's a dog who has not been exposed to a cat, you know, the dog will just lose their mind. Whereas, sure. you know, my dogs have done pretty well because they have coexisted peacefully. You're tempting me. Andrea McCarran is president of the Penn Fed Foundation. James Skank is CEO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank, Thank you, you so much. If anyone wants information, please send them to penfedfoundation.org. All right. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.